Thank you very much for inviting me. I'm uh, very pleased to be here today to meet uh, all you lovely people. This is my first time here, so um, I hope to have a very good discussion uh, afterwards. Uh, thank you, uh, Dr. Petrov, for such an excellent uh, uh, s stroll through <laughs> recent and not so recent reforms. Um, I'll, I'll try not to duplicate uh, what, you, what you've said, because, of course, I have some information, of course, on uh, uh, previous developments in um, uh, Russian education law, but they are all focused on uh, autonomy uh, of higher education providers. So I've chosen this topic. I see it as an overarching tenet of development of higher education today, and um, uh, I will quickly go through um, some of the origins of this concept and how it's reflected in uh, uh, current Russian legislation and uh, some of the challenges which uh, we can only identify through looking by, by looking at the court practice. And uh, 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 Georgi already mentioned today that uh, Russian academics may still have uh, a little bit of uh, Soviet-type thinking. When I, when, I, when I did my undergraduate in, um, in Moscow, we still had this uh, 70 compulsory modules uh, and 70 exams face-to-face. -face. And uh, unfortunately, nobody taught me how to um, engage with and analyze the court practice. So this is something I had to uh, learn by myself. And this case law-based education for lawyers, I think it's essential, but it's still only becoming uh, more or less prominent now. So um, I'll start with a short historical, um, short chronology of uh, how I would think uh, the concept of autonomy appeared in. Um, uh, Russian system at all. <laughs> so I would, I would, I would really, really start from uh, as early as establishment of the first university in of uh, first Moscow, first university of Russia by Catherine the Great. Uh, but you can see that there, there was 50 years bet be between it was established and uh, the date when uh, a more or less autonomous uh, char charter has been uh, donated or granted to this university by Alexander the first. Here's his uh, initial here. I really, really liked it <laughs> on the actual copy of the charter. So what did those, pe those people back then believe uh, autonomy is? Um, so they granted the highest collective decision-making body the right to make uh, all appointments, the professorial appointments and uh, uh, junior professors as well. The rector was appointed by this uh, decision-making body. It wasn't appointed by the ministry for the first time. Academic freedoms of professors were also guaranteed. The university court was established, which was something very, very unusual for that time. So rector and executive council had their own uh, competence in um, uh, resolving certain issues within the university uh, of like a small uh, monetary claims or uh, disciplinary, disciplinary claims. Uh, importantly, those decisions, decisions couldn't be appealed, so it's, it all stayed within the university structure. It, very important that the university printing house was free of state censorship. So for the first time, the uni university academic freedoms were truly upheld by, by the um, um, well, legislation at that time. And the university, the university library had unlimited access to literature, including foreign li literature, but only for professors and junior professors, uh, whereas uh, access of general public was uh, censored. So not everybody had <laughs> the capacity to deal with uh, 
um, books which could be considered um, um, dangerous or se uh, seductive or harmful. <laughs> so they, they used the word uh, um, seductive, which I, I thought was very lovely <laughs> for that time. So uh, since that time, we, we're going further. And uh, since that time, the question of autonomy was uh, jumping back and forth. It was granted, it was taken. And um, uh, as, as we, you can see, the, it was cancelled by Nicholas I. Uh, especially he was concerned about the university court system as a, as a particularly dangerous idea. Then Alexander II came uh, to the throne and um, he uh, had the, 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 the most liberal of all laws on universities of Imperial Russia was introduced, the University Charter. So again, court is back, library is back, censorship is uh, um, uh, withdrawn from the universities. But, unfortunately, he was murdered, as we all know, <coughs> and um, uh, in response to that assassination, all liberal freedoms were withdrawn in, all, in, all, in, all, in many, many different um, areas of Russian uh, imperial life, um, uh, especially in, um, educa in um, education. Then, various attempts, again, in the early revolutionary dates to restore autonomy, but as we, as we know, and as Dr. Petrov already told us, that in Soviet times, no autonomy could be expected because everything was centralized and, um, well, the, the totalitarian system probably couldn't, w wouldn't allow for uh, e even this question to be raised. So, um, considering this difficult relationship between uh, universities and the state, the uh, current period of Russian history can be um, uh, considered as a uh, manifesting autonomy as one of the main principles of uh, state policy for the first time in the last uh, at least 70 years. So, but the problem with this uh, uh, seemingly liberal development is that um, the totalitarian period has uh, completely killed the private initiative in many areas of life. So even restoration, uh, legal restoration of um, uh, the principle of autonomy, it's... it's uh, seemingly simple, but uh, the actual restoration will take will be a, a long and uh, painful process. Uh, and in the center of this process, in my opinion, is the mutual trust between the state and um, uh, the people, the society. And although public trust, public trust in state institutions it is uh, currently slowly developing since 2000, and our research shows that there is an increased um, number of claims uh, which people bring to courts instead of resolving them in, a, in non formal channels. So, I this shows um, uh, raising public trust in uh, 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 state institutions. But the other way around, the trust of the government in independence of the citizens, in their ability to make independent decisions and uh, use their own judgment, is unfortunately very limited. So, um, so against this general background, I would like to consider uh, the contemporary understanding of university autonomy and, importantly, its limits. So I will separate the next text in um, two parts, this, this section on uh, contemporary legislation. The uh, education legislation, first, is the edu education legislation immediately following breakdown of the Soviet Union and uh, current education legislation. So, um, as you can see on the slide, I mark them with red cross so that you keep in mind that these two legislative acts are not in force anymore. 
they were uh, invalidated in 2013, so it's just for, for indication when the uh, talk about university autonomy has started. Um, so the, in, in the 90s, the university received uh, property rights, land, tax benefits, ideological freedom, as we already heard today, protect and protection from excessive uh, state regulation. So the first post-Soviet law on uh, education, the federal law on education, 1992, for the first time mentioned autonomy of educational institutions as one of the principles of uh, state education policy. Also, um, it has it highlighted the unusual for the time independence of educational institutions in the decisions of appointment of staff, in teaching and research activities, in financial matters, and so on. Similar guarantees were later provided by the specialized law on uh, higher and postgraduate professional education, 1996. So it should be noted that these two legislative acts, they were developed and adopted in a very progressive manner, in full compliance with international law and international obligations of Russia in, term, in uh, the area of education. And uh, notably, the first law was introduced even before the constitution came in force. Uh, my father started a private school in, uh, around this time, so he could use the law on uh, um, education in uh, this small town near Moscow, but the, the constitutional right to education was not even yet established. So that was a real, real challenge, and, and with, by, by watching his work, I could uh, uh, understand how many challenges a, a person must come through to uh, I don't know, pr pr provide uh, a better quality education than the public system could uh, um, provide. So, um, like I said, importantly, this legislation wa was um, based on international law. And um, um, it happened even before the European Convention on Human Rights was ratified. So not only the Constitution was yet enforced, but European Convention was also uh, still to be ratified. Of course, it existed, but um, Russia was uh, still in the process. Um, so this openness of uh, educational legislation to international law was a clear sign of the renewed priorities of the Russian state. And um, the, um, uh, Linda mentioned that I'm a member of um, European Association of Education Law and Policy, and uh, by inter interacting with these people there in Antwerp, I found out that uh, the professors of this um, professors of, the, of Antwerp University and uh, members of this association, they actually came to Moscow in the 90s and uh, helped to draft this legislation in accordance, to, in accordance with uh, uh, international law. So this is um, um, very important. They, 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 of course, brought all these developments in, uh, in force. Oh, yeah, uh, they, uh, by, the, by the time of drafting, um, uh, the limited declaration of academic freedom and autonomy of institutions of higher education was already adopted, so I'm sure that they've taken it into account and uh, um, trying to, tr trying to uh, implement in uh, Russian education legislation these um, interesting <laughs> elements of autonomy, how, it is, how they are seen in the declaration. Um, well, you can see them on, on the screen, independence from the state and other sources of society, uh, independence in issues of internal government, finance and administration, and own policies and education research and other related activities. 
Of course, declaration is not binding. It's not a compulsory source of law. Um, it's good that it was taken on board. But I would say that even especially at the time, implementation of this um, seemingly harmless ideas was, uh, uh, was very, very difficult. For example, independence of higher education institutions from the state was at the time almost practically impossible because, of course, the majority of them were founded by the state, um, run under close supervision of the founders, which are state bodies, so it was <laughs> a declaration and, uh, and uh, nothing more. So at the time of the drafting, the, um, the, the, li the, the, liberal, the liberalization of economy only happened, happened a little bit later. So again, this was the, the economic uh, or financial independence was also very difficult. Freedom from other forces of society is a very interesting phrase. I've never seen it in Russian law, but um, I could um, translate it into some of the provisions in the law on education. For example, a freedom from compulsory ideology could be seen as freedom from uh, other for, uh, other influences, in freedom from influence from other forces of society. Uh, secular nature of public education in Article 2 of the first law. Also, it is a freedom from other sources of society. Protection from political influence, for example, as well. The prohibition of uh, political parties in uh, educational institutions and um, uh, prohibition of propaganda in educational institutions. So this is, these were the guarantees which were just slightly differently, differently worded, but they were there. So, uh, let's move on. <laughs> so, the situ this situation with the uh, first laws of the uh, of early uh, 1990s was um, oh, it just got out of control very quickly, very quickly. The amount of legislative um, amendments was just unsurmountable. It's, they were just coming two or three per year. The system was not able to adapt quickly enough. The two basic laws had a lot of inconsistencies uh, and uh, controversies. So um, it was very, very difficult to, to manage. Moreover, which is very important for the students, the uh, provisions regulating status of students were uh, stipulated in a sublegal legislation, which sometimes, sublegal sub acts, which sometimes you can't take to court. So, yeah, so this, is the, this is the important thing. So to improve the situation in 2010 and 2012, a working group was created by the Ministry of Education to draft this brand new beautifully structured uh, federal law on education. I was happy to be part of this uh, process, and um, um, if we have time, we can discuss it, of course. But um, it was a very, very meticulous process of trying to reconcile interests of so many ministries, all of them having their own institutions, and the interests of the Ministry of Education, of course, trying to manage the whole system, the interests of the subjects of the Russian Federation, who didn't want to, to, to give away the delegated um, um, uh, competence that they received uh, at some point. So that was a, a, a diff difficult process and uh, it was at the same time we had to keep in mind the best interests of the child and the best, best interests of the students and parents because education is a public good and not a commodity.
So <laughs> the uh, new law, as well as the previous laws, um, does recognize autonomy of educational institutions, again, as the uh, main principle of state education policy. And um, among other important principles, you may find, uh, I don't know, sec secular education, unity of educational space, so um, um, aim at an international integration of Russian education, and so on. So it, it is a, a, an important principle. <coughs> and um, it is described as uh, independence in educational, scientific, administrative, and financial activities, as well as the freedom to adopt local normative act. But importantly, and I highlighted in red, in conformity with the current legislation. So the autonomy is de, de, de facto, de, default, um, limited from the point when it's proclaimed. Yes, yeah, so it comes with uh, strings attached. I'll give a couple of examples a little bit later when I talk about case law, but here are just uh, two questions. So independence in designing internal structure of the organization, but how about public institutions? In public institutions, the owner decides uh, everything, and it's still so. And uh, uh, independence in delivery of education content, content. Of course, this independence is uh, limited by the standards and basic education prog programs, and um, we'll come to, to that later. <coughs> so, um, oh, I'm not going to stop in, in very de much detail about all these uh, developments that were already highlighted today. I, I've only chosen, I mean, there are many, 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 many more. I, I don't want to go into much detail on that, but these are those that I think really affect, and in a very different way, uh, the uh, autonomy of higher education institutions. So, of course, in 2003, Bologna process. Not only we accepted the two-tier European system, but also we signed up to the Bologna Charter in 1988, which proclaimed academic auto autonomy as one of the main principles. So we had to make an attempt to implement it seriously in, uh, um, in the legal system, educational system, not just um, declaratory. In uh, 2005, uh, the famous or infamous uh, uh, law 122, <laughs> Uh, cancelled tax benefits for um, educational institutions. And that was a big catastrophe. And I, I still, still up to this moment, find uh, many, many cases where the consequences, the, the tragic consequences of these decisions are um, coming up. And um, then another catastrophic um, uh, d development in 2006, particularly for private educational institutions. At that time, I was working in uh, registration of uh, new universities and schools. And I, um, I faced this problem or challenge of working with the Ministry of Justice who acquired the functions to register um, new educational institutions. So now they could read the charter as a, the basic document, basic establishing document of the organization, line by line, and uh, make use of all the inconsistencies in the le legislation in uh, uh, civil legislation, uh, uh, educational legislation, procedural, all these inconsistencies immediately were turned against the person who would apply. So that was um, uh, one of the <laughs> uh, biggest hurdles at the time to start up a new educational institution. And the developments with autonomous institutions were um, designed to make life easier for uh, state 
um, uh, universities. But interestingly, um, uh, two years have passed since uh, the law on autonomous institution was adopted, and only uh, two universities changed from uh, budgetary into autonomous, although that would make them more free in uh, spending their money and uh, having their own property, they didn't want to lose the security of public funding. So the, <laughs> the situation was uh, not so straightforward as it was, um, as it was um, designed. So uh, to address this problem, in 2010, another large-scale uh, reform was uh, undertook to which seriously affected higher education institutions. And uh, we are talking about changing of the funding scheme. It's a, it's a very complicated subject. I'm not going, <laughs> not going into that. It, uh, the, 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 the only idea that we, we can take away with us uh, about this changing of funding, uh, that uh, instead of approved um, um, uh, annual fun fun funding on the basis of estimate cost, we received uh, state tasks. So state tasks were a, were a more flexible instrument to work with um, and, um, mm, well, it was, again, supposed to bring more freedom in uh, spending your own money. And, the I mean, the money that were extra budget, extra budgetary, something I've earned, of course I can spend, but no, that, that was not so, <laughs> that was not so straightforward. So... Um, again, we talked uh, uh, already today about optimization of the network of universities and uh, federal universities were created and national research universities and um, this was um, a serious effort in uh, uh, like a first step to the Project 500 uh, which um, uh, Georgi already described. So I would, I would just like to say one little word here before we go to cases. Uh, sometimes the change was not legislative, but came through um, judicial activism. And this is something that we discovered through our research in uh, Manchester, that um, our research shows that the level of involvement of the judiciary in public policy in Russia is exceptionally high. Sometimes through intense judicial review, initiated by citizens or uh, public bodies, courts in can invalidate secondary legislation and regional normative acts on a rate approximately two, three thousand normative acts per year. And this is a, a constant number. So people litigate against the state, not only like I'm unhappy with this or that decision against me, but also, please, I'm not happy with this act. Um, we should do about something about it. It was applied in my case, and uh, I think that it's uh, unconstitutional or violates the federal law. And two to three thousand uh, acts per year are invalidated by courts. And importantly, and it is very different from how it is happening here in the UK, for example, um, courts engage in uh, politics in a way, and they create policy in certain areas where the legislature is slow or uh, reluctant to legislate. There are many, many examples I want, again, one stop uh, in any of them, we can discuss it later. But such important things as uh, migration policy, taxation, social development problem, uh, programs, even budgeting, which is usually um, uh, fenced off from uh, judicial decisions, but in Russia it's not. So one of the many examples is in the area of uh, education as well. Mm. In uh, 2013, um, an, um, amendments were introduced 
to, uh, to legislation based on previous decisions of Supreme Court and Russian Constitutional Court that not only state bodies are responsible for providing response to <coughs> petitions of, uh, of uh, citizens, but also private organizations performing public functions, which can be, uh, universities can be attributed this public function as well, because they provide education, education is a public function, so the responsibility to respond to citizens' petitions is applied to universities as well. And uh, so this is a sign that uh, uh, um, enhanced accountability comes with uh, enhanced autonomy in resolving uh, your own issues within uh, your own institution. A little bit like the court of uh, imperial, imperial Russia, the university court. So, um, yeah, okay, I'm, I'm going to case now. Uh, so these, are, these were just highlights of the reforms. And um, I would now show in three concrete examples how autonomy is uh, declared in, a, in the law, but sometimes limited in practice. And I'm using a Russian case law to uh, describe these three examples. So first, as we, as we saw in uh, the federal law on education, autonomy to design an internal structure of the organization. What it means, the structure of governing bodies is designed by the charter. Charter is the main um, document de defining the um, institution's uh, internal life, yeah? But is there a way to alter the contents of the charter? On the first, at the first glance, yes, general meeting of students and staff, but the competence of this general meeting is defined by the charter, so there's a vicious circle. How can we change it if we, are, if we don't have the right to change it? Uh, the right to participate in management of the uh, organization is also guaranteed by the law, but in the way prescribed by the charter. Again, if my right to vote for the change is not in the charter, I can't vote for the change. And um, uh, in one of the courts, court rulings, uh, 2008, you can see, um, the, uh, the court said the institution has no right to appeal its own charter if it's adopted by the founder. And the founder can be, for example, Ministry of Education or uh, another state body. And even if there, there was no... Uh, general meeting of uh, the staff, this idea, this uh, fact can't act as a um, factor uh, constituting legitimate ground for cancellation of the charter. So if you come to court, you can't say, oh, I didn't vote for the charter because the founder adopted it uh, in the way that it is. So <laughs> that's one maybe institutional constraint to autonomy. Um, then auto uh, autonomy in economic activities. We cite from the from law, educational institution enjoys autonomy in economic activities in accordance with legislation, of course. <laughs> and uh, uh, what, what can we see in uh, this uh, Sverdlovsk uh, regional court ruling? Educational organization created in the form of institution cannot have property rights, only operational control of the buildings and uh, other elements of infrastructure. The founder remains the owner of the property of institution. How can we talk about economic, um, economic um, uh, autonomy if the property remains in uh, the hands of the body, state body that founded the institution? And um, 
there are there are many many other cases on uh, um, incorrect uh, uh, or illegitimate spending spending of public funds, and it all has to do with uh, autonomy question mark in uh, um, ed economic activities of educational institutions. Yeah, and the third example, autonomy in defining the contents of education. <laughs> um, of course, it has to be within the licensed uh, programs and uh, educational institutions are free to define the contents, but within the licensed and uh, accredited program. The 80-20 um, structure, uh, like 80 compulsory component, 20 um, component of the, of the institution is, of course, a way to design the 20% of your special uh, modules, but uh, if you compare, for example, with a more um, mobile uh, education systems, more flexible, then we can see that it may not be so, may not be enough. So, license is compulsory uh, for any educational activity. Also, um, and here are three examples. The um, in 2000, 2014, this uh, Moscow City Court ruling ruled that um, only programs included in the license, um, or the, the, the university has to re has a right to implement only those pro 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 programs that are included in the license, and uh, a private university was fined for approximately 1,700 pounds equivalent for carrying out extracurriculum programs which were not included in the institution's license. And this is a very common situation. Um, license is compulsory for any educational institution or any educational activities carried out by an organization for which this educational activity is the main purpose of creation. And uh, if it's a religious institution, for example, and there are religious institutions in um, higher education, they also have um, the obligation to obtain a license. So in, in this case, 2003, uh, the, a court in uh, Far Eastern District um, uh, um, decided on liquidation of an evangelical church for not complying with uh, this requirement of obtaining a license. And uh, finally, there was a very interesting case uh, in Moscow in 2014, quite recently, on um, whether universities should annually review their educational process. This seems just such a minor thing. And uh, the courts and the state and the supervision agency was involved in the process of re resolving this question. Should a university annually sit down and approve the program once again, or shouldn't? It, it just seems to be an over-regulation of such a minor thing. Yes, uh, so the court decided that it is an over-regulation, and uh, let these people decide for themselves what uh, sh should they renew or should they review, but leave the program intact, so not change it this year. It's up to them. They don't have to add like mechanically a couple of words just to make it make the the, like, the illusion that the program was changed, just because there is an, a requirement to review it. So. Yeah, so this is, this is my conclusion here. Um, I would say that the, <laughs> the uh, step towards uh, autonomy 
is uh, taken especially with this uh, 5100 project and it's taken seriously. Uh, this, is, this is how I see. But the change is very slow and very painful. And it's still limited by excessive regulation and heavy legal construction which is attached to the uh, legal form of institution, uh, which is not flexible in uh, financial mat matters. Reporting obligations of non-profit institutions, they can even be called foreign agents if they receive money from abroad and engage in political activities, I uh, which can be now anything. They can even be uh, called foreign agents, really. And uh, disproportional and not quite competitive and transparent access to these large grants of financial support by the state within this project. So these are my conclusions for today, and I'll be happy to discuss. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.